Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Okay, so we are, we're in week eight of our 10-week foundation series. And today we're going to talk about our belief statement. That is what we believe the Bible says about some very important topics. Now we are Hill Country Bible Church. And so the Bible is central to everything we do. We don't base our lives on the opinions of men, but rather on the Word of God. And last week we talked about why we believe the Bible to be inerrant. Absolute truth. If you missed that, go online and check it out. But today we're going to talk about what we believe the Bible says as it pertains to 10 very crucial topics. And let me just start with this. When it comes to interpreting the Bible, it's not a matter of, well, this verse means this to me and maybe it means this to you. No, God's word has one objective meaning and it's our job to honestly assess what that meaning is. Author and theologian J.C. Ryle once said this, I hold that the words of scripture were intended to have one definite sense and adhere rigidly to it. To say the words do mean a thing merely because they can be tortured into meaning it is a most dishonorable and dangerous way of handling Scripture. I agree. Now, having said that, we also have to honestly admit that no one has a corner on the truth. One of my seminary professors once said, the best of theologians are probably right around 80% of the time. So while we strive to uncover and adhere to the truth, we have to acknowledge that nobody is perfect. And because of that, our belief statement begins with this charge that I think is very important. At Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown, we demonstrate unity in the essential beliefs, liberty in the non-essential beliefs, and we express charity in all of our interactions with others. I think that's good. We're going to have unity in those things that are essential We're going to show liberty in the non-essentials. And whenever we talk to other people, we're going to show grace or charity in our interactions with them when it comes to doctrinal issues. Okay, so we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. And I'll just tell you up front, this is going to be radically different than my typical message, okay? It's going to be a much different style. And so what I'm going to ask you to do today is to put on your thinking caps, stay focused, and bear with me. Because I'm going to walk us through our entire doctrinal statement verbatim so I don't miss a single word. And I'll add a few comments along the way. And my goal is to get us out of here in less than four hours. I promise, okay? (laughs) I'm kidding. Two. Two tops. Here we go. You ready? It's going to be full steam ahead. Now, in the middle of your outline, your 87-page outline that you received this morning, the doctoral statement's in there, so you have to kind of flip back and forth. And I'm not going to read all the verses that support these points, but you can go home and study those on your own, all right? Here we go. The Bible. We believe that the books of the Old and New Testament comprising the Holy Bible are the inspired Word of God. We believe that the Holy Spirit supervised the writers of the Scriptures in what they wrote so that, using their own peculiar personalities, the very words recorded in the original manuscripts are the inerrant revelation of God. We believe the Bible not only contains the Word of God, but actually is God's Word, and therefore is the complete and final authority for belief and behavior. We believe that this inspiration extends equally and fully to all parts of Scripture, historically, poetically, doctrinally, and prophetically. Okay, a few key points to note here. Key point number one, what is the meaning of this phrase, inerrant? 
Whenever you see that phrase in here, what that means is that everything that is recorded in the Bible is absolute truth. If a passage seems false, contradictory, or confusing, it's due to our inability to understand the Bible, not the Bible itself. Key point number two, Scripture must be interpreted according to its unique genre of literature. For example, some books of the Bible are simply letters of instruction. Those are pretty straightforward to understand. Other books of the Bible contain prophecy, which is a genre of literature that uses symbolism, which may or may not be literal. And then you have the book of Proverbs in there that contains proverbial sayings. Those are things that are generally true in life, but not always true. And you see, all those things have to be taken into account to properly interpret the scriptures. Key point number three, the original manuscripts in their original language, Hebrew or Greek, are flawless. However, certain translations can be flawed. There are some English translations that are better than others for a variety of reasons. And God doesn't promise to oversee all of mankind's translations into other languages. But he did inspire the original manuscripts. And then fourth, a common question is, if man wrote the Bible, couldn't there be mistakes since no man is perfect? Well, God used individuals who spoke according to their own personalities, their own unique language. However, he filled them with the Holy Spirit so that whatever they communicated was absolute truth. 2 Peter 1.21 kind of shows us the balance of both the human and divine aspects of Scripture. It says, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that's the Bible. Next, let's talk about the Trinity. We believe that there is one and only one true and living God, an infinite spirit who is the maker and supreme ruler of the universe. We believe the scriptures reveal him to be holy, sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, immutable, and full of love, justice, goodness, mercy, and truth. Although there is only one God, we believe that in the unity of the Godhead, there are three eternal and co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe these members of the Trinity are the same in substance, having precisely the same nature, attributes, and perfections, but are distinct in subsistence, executing different but harmonious functions. And let me walk you through real quick just an explanation of God's attributes to make sure we're all on the same page. What does it mean when we say God is holy? It means God is separate, set apart. He's unique, one of a kind. There is no other being in the universe close to God. How about sovereign? What does that mean? It means God is in control of the entire universe, although we know he grants human beings a certain degree of freedom. He still maintains his sovereignty, his control. Omnipotent, God's all-powerful. He's almighty. Omniscient, God knows all things. Omnipresent, God is present everywhere. Eternal, God has existed from eternity past and will exist into all eternity future. Immutable, what does that mean? It means God is unchanging. How about the fact that God is love? What that means is God is benevolent to all of his creation. Not some, but all. Justice, God is fair in all his dealings with his creation. Goodness, what does that mean? It means God cannot do evil. It means he desires the best for all of his creation. Mercy, God has compassion on those in need. He works on their behalf. And then finally, truth, God cannot lie. So there are some of the attributes of God. What about the functions 
of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. See, we say the members of the Trinity are executing different but harmonious functions. What does that look like? Well, first of all, we know that God the Father is the author of salvation. Okay, he's the one who designed the plan of salvation for mankind. We know that God the Son carried out the Father's plan, obeying the Father's will by dying on the cross. And we know that God the Spirit convicts and calls people to God's saving grace and then transforms the lives of those who receive salvation through faith in him. So those are some of the functions, the unique functions that the Father, Son, and Spirit have. And now comes the big question, what about the Trinity? Okay, what is the Trinity? What is that all about? We cannot fully explain the Trinity. Let me just say that up front. God is unique. I mean, you and I, we live in a three-dimensional world in which all physical objects have height, width, and depth. You know, one person can look like another person, behave like another person, even sound like another person, but that person cannot actually be another person, right? They are distinct individuals. God, however, does not live within the limitations of a three-dimensional universe, okay? He is unique. He is spirit. He is infinitely more complex than we are. And that's why God the Son, Jesus, can be different from God the Father and yet the same. I mean, you read the Bible, it's very clear. It speaks of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And yet it emphasizes that there's only one God. For you guys that are into math, okay, it would not be one plus one plus one equals three. It would be one times one times one equals one. God is a triune God. Or because God is infinite, sometimes I've heard it this way, okay? God can be determined this way. One infinity plus one infinity plus one infinity still equals one infinity. Why? Because infinity is infinite. Therefore, it can't get any larger. Thus, the term tri meaning three and unity meaning one. Tri plus unity equals trinity. It's just a way of acknowledging what the Bible reveals to us about God. That somehow he exists as three persons who share the same essence of deity. Now, every once in a while, somebody will try to use some human illustrations, which I think can be helpful, but, but they don't fully explain it. One of those is H2O. Okay, we know that H2O can exist at a certain temperature as water, ice, and steam. Okay, all different forms, but they're all still H2O. Another illustration would be the sun. From it, we receive light, heat, and radiation. Three distinct elements or aspects, and yet one sun. Now, admittedly, no illustration is going to be perfect. But from all of eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been in relationship, have been in communication with each other, yet not as three gods, but as one God. Okay, let's talk specifically about Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ is the preexistent and eternal Son of God who became man in order to reveal God and redeem man. We believe he was supernaturally conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. In his person, we believe the Lord Jesus combined forever full and undiminished deity with true and perfect humanity to become the God-man. We believe Christ died on the cross as a substitute for sinful man, was buried, arose bodily from the tomb, ascended into heaven where he ministers on the behalf of saints, and someday will come again for his own. Okay, a few key points here. First of all, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Hear me on this. He didn't sacrifice his deity to become man. And he didn't sacrifice being fully human, just like we are, even though he was God. And people, Jesus was subject to the same temptations, the same weaknesses that we are. Yet he was sinless. 
Speaking of Jesus, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. That's encouraging. He's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Second point, what does he ministers on behalf of saints mean? Well, we know that right now Jesus is in heaven and he speaks to God the Father on our behalf. Take a look at Hebrews 7.25. It says, he lives to make intercession for us. Whatever needs I have, whatever needs you have are related to God the Father through the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Isn't that encouraging to know right now, even as I speak, Jesus is interceding on your behalf. That's pretty cool. How about the Holy Spirit? We believe the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, fully equal with God the Father and God the Son. Although he is of the exact same essence, we believe he's a personality distinct from the other members of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit, we believe, has an active ministry to the world in general, which includes the restraining of evil, convicting of the unsaved, and bestowing of God's goodness on all mankind. We also believe he has a ministry to every Christian, which consists of regenerating, sealing, indwelling, baptizing in the body of Christ, and the giving of spiritual gifts. We believe some of these gifts, such as apostleship and prophesying new revelation, have completed their function, and thus are not for the body of Christ today. Nor do we believe that speaking in tongues or healing services are a part of corporate worship. Other ministries to obedient Christians include filling, assuring, teaching, guiding, and comforting. Now, I know that this one always leads to some interesting conversations, okay? First of all, some people will say, well, why do you say the gifts of apostleship and prophesying new revelation have completed their function and thus are not for the body of Christ today? Well, you need to understand the apostles were a unique group of individuals that the Bible says were limited to those who had seen and known Jesus firsthand. They were called by him to build the foundation of the church. They died out in the first century. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 kind of spells out the order of all the people who built the church. This is what it says. It says, so Christ himself gave, first of all here, the apostles, the prophets, that would be the next level, the evangelists, and then the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And as to prophesying new revelation, we believe God gave us all the revelation we need in the Bible which was completed when the Apostle John wrote the final book in our Bibles, the book of Revelation. And it was the last book that was written. And interestingly enough, when John penned and completed the final chapter of the final book of Revelation, this is what he wrote. I think this is instructive for us. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. Wow. See, I believe that's a warning to anyone who would claim to have new revelation that would be on par with the scripture and thus would be inerrant. Now hear me on this. I am not saying that people don't hear from God today. I believe they do, especially about areas of scripture you know, that we're not necessarily clear about. God can give individual instruction to people. God can speak today. But we will never put those teachings or prophecies on the same level of authority as scripture. All right? Another question we often receive is this. Well, you say speaking in tongues is not a part of corporate worship. But do you believe the gift of tongues exists today? And if so, why not use it in the worship service? It's a really good question. 
Okay, speaking in tongues can be a confusing topic, and it really unnecessarily, I believe, divides Christians today. But if you look at the New Testament, we believe that the gift of tongues was used by God's people to communicate God's message to people of other languages and nationalities, okay? They were real languages that the hearers understood as their own dialect. So whether or not God could use the gift of tongues today might depend on the circumstance, right? We certainly believe God can do whatever God wants to do. He could use that gift, although we would say it's not normative. And as to why we don't practice tongues in our worship services, it's because we concur with the Apostle Paul that the primary purpose of the worship service is worshiping God and proclaiming his word, okay? Not speaking in tongues. Take a close look at 1 Corinthians 14, 19. Great verse here. This is Paul speaking. He says, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Okay, we agree. So we know what the purpose of our worship service is. It's to speak God's word and to worship God. Now, I suppose if a group of foreigners who didn't speak English came into our worship service, who knows? God might give someone the gift of tongues so that those people could hear the good news in their own dialect, their own language. I suspect that would be highly unlikely. All right, one more. You also say healing services are not a part of worship. Why not? Okay, hear me on this. We can and do and absolutely no doubt believe that God is able to heal, all right? One of the names of God in Scripture is Jehovah Rapha, God of healing. We see it all throughout the New Testament. James 5, in fact, instructs people who are sick to call the elders of the church, anoint them with oil, and pray over them. Our elders do just that. We regularly pray for sick people, and we have seen God's miraculous healing on many, many occasions. But again, we don't practice a healing service because we think the primary purpose of the worship service is worshiping God and instructing his people in his word. All right, let's keep moving. How about angelic beings? We believe that God created an order of spirit beings known as angels before the formation of the world for the purpose of worshiping and serving him. We believe angels possess individual personalities and are intelligent, powerful, and inferior to God, but superior to man. Lucifer, we believe, was one of the highest in rank of all the angelic beings in eternity past, but he sinned through pride and rebelled against God, thereby becoming Satan. We believe the devil's proclaimed purpose is to oppose the plan of God and to promote his own evil program by deceiving and attacking men. In carrying out his work, we believe Satan is aided by other fallen angels known as demons or evil spirits. We believe these demons can influence, tempt, and control all men and even possess unbelievers. We believe there are unfallen angels known as elect or holy angels who carry out the will of God by ministering to men. Let me just say a quick word here. We believe that spiritual warfare is very real. All right? It affects believers and unbelievers alike. But spiritual warfare is not a power struggle, okay? It is a truth struggle. Jesus said, Satan is a liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44. But Jesus also said, the truth will set you free, John 8, 32. See, Satan tries to get you to believe lies. Why? Because that's gonna affect how you think, which will affect how you feel, which will affect how you act. The solution is to know God's truth, which affects how you think, feel, and act. Now, the Bible's very clear. You can read all throughout it that believers and unbelievers can be attacked by demonic forces. 
But an unbeliever can certainly be affected to a greater degree than a believer. We know that. Okay, how about creation? We believe that the triune God, according to his sovereign will and for his own glory, created the heavens and the earth without the use of preexistent material. All living things, we believe, came into being by a direct creative act of God and not by an evolutionary or random process and thus have an existence distinct from him and yet always dependent upon him. Now, sometimes people want to know, okay, what do you believe about the age of the earth? Okay, we don't take a particular stand regarding that issue because we think Genesis can be interpreted different ways, either to include a younger earth or an older earth. We do believe in what is known as microevolution. Okay, that's simply the fact that a species can change or adapt within its own species. We believe that. I think there's evidence of that. It's pretty clear. We don't believe, however, in macroevolution. Okay, that would be the theory that over time, one species evolved into another species. See, Genesis repeatedly says that God created the animals each according to its own kind. You'll see that phrase over and over there. God created the animals each according to its own kind. How about man? Let's talk about us. We believe that man was created in the image and likeness of God in a state of innocence. Through deliberate disobedience, we believe man fell from his sinless state and as a consequence lost his fellowship with God and became subject to spiritual and physical death. We believe that through Adam's transgressions, the entire human race has inherited a corrupt nature, which is essentially evil and unable to please God. Okay, two key points to mention here. First of all, what does it mean that man was created in the image of God? Well, being created in the image of God, it, it means that mankind is set apart in some way. Okay, we see that in the early records in Genesis, that being created in the image of God is what set mankind, sets mankind apart from the rest of creation. It means we have an eternal soul and spirit. It means that we are like God in many ways. First of all, we're like God mentally. We can reason, we can create, we can choose. We're like God morally, we have a conscience. We're like God socially, we were designed for fellowship. But this particular statement here, it also has to do with authority, that we were created to rule, to rule over the earth. However, since sin entered into the world, the perfect image of God in mankind is distorted to a certain degree. Which leads us to the second point. How did we inherit a corrupt nature from Adam's sin? Well, the Bible says that genetically, you and I, we all go back to one set of parents, Adam and Eve. Okay, we're all related. We all go back to the earthly parents, Adam and Eve. So in a very real sense, we were in Adam when he sinned. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam, in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And also, I think, just experience shows us that every one of us sins through our actions, right? Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's talk about sin. We believe that sin is anything contrary to the character of God. Every man, we believe, is alienated from God because of his depraved nature, as well as personal acts of sin. We believe that each person born into the world is separated from God and completely incapable of meriting salvation and avoiding the judgment of God. The sin nature, we believe, is never eradicated, even for those who are born into the family of God, but it remains until the end of life. However, we believe God has made provision for forgiveness of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ and victory over sin through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, here's a question we sometimes get. At what point in time are we first considered to be sinners? 
People, it's at the moment of conception. David says this in Psalm 51.5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. All right? How about some good news? Let's talk about salvation. We need some good news here. Yeah. <laughs> Relieve the tension. We believe that salvation from the penalty and power of sin is provided only through the blood of Jesus Christ, which he shed on the cross when he was made sin for us and died in our place. There is nothing man can do, we believe, to attain this salvation through good works, moral achievement, or religious status. We believe the one and only condition for salvation, the one and only condition for salvation, this is huge, it's personal faith in Jesus Christ as one's own substitute for and savior from sin. At the time of salvation, we believe a person is spiritually regenerated, his sins are forgiven, God's righteousness is imputed to him, and he is declared righteous in the sight of God. This salvation, we believe, is complete and a present possession of all believers, which remains theirs forever. All who have trusted Christ as Savior are kept secure and will never lose their salvation. Okay, one key point here. What does it mean when we say God's righteousness is imputed to all believers? Okay, if you look back, that, that term imputed, it's actually an accounting term. And it means that something is credited to your account. So in the case of salvation, God looks at Jesus' perfect righteousness and he credits that righteousness to our account. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that means when Jesus Christ looks at you as a believer, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Not your own impurity, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's tremendous news. All right, let's talk about the church, us. We believe that the church is a unique organism. That's an understatement, okay? A unique organism <clears throat> composed of individuals who have placed their faith in Christ as Savior. The church began, we believe, on the day of Pentecost and will continue its distinct purpose until the rapture. We believe that the church exists in both a universal aspect as the body of Christ and in a local assembly of believers. The local church, we believe, has the twofold purpose of the edification of believers and the evangelization of the lost. The two ordinances of the church are water baptism, which we practice by immersion, and the Lord's Supper, which we believe to be a memorial of Christ's death and is open to all believers. Okay, two big questions here. First of all, what does Hill Country Bible Church Georgetown believe about the Lord's Supper? Well, the Lord's Supper is celebrated by believers as a memorial looking back and remembering what Christ has done for us. And it's also kind of a testimony of our future hope in Christ's return. And we practice this on the first Sunday of each and every month, and we encourage all people who have put their faith in Jesus to celebrate communion with us, to partake of the Lord's Supper. Second, what do we believe about baptism? Well, baptism is a symbolic illustration of Christ's death and resurrection, and it's also a testimony to other people of a believer's new life as a Christian. And while we don't require baptism for membership at Hill Country Bible Church, we believe it's a very spiritually significant event. And so we encourage everyone to participate in baptism. All right, two to go here. <clears throat> Stay with me, okay? The next two are a bit tricky, which is why we have an asterisk by them. What that means is we don't expect you to understand all this. You don't have to agree with all this to be a member. That's why we say this, strict agreement with these doctrines is not required for membership at Hill Country Bible Church. However, we affirm these beliefs as taught in Scripture and have established them as the official positions of our church. So here we go. First of all, let's talk about what's known as dispensations. We believe 
that God administers his purpose in the world through man under varying dispensations or stewardships, such as the period of Mosaic law, the present age of grace, and the future millennial kingdom. We believe that these dispensations span the entire history of mankind, but the dispensations are not different ways of salvation. Rather, they are ways of life which test the obedience of man to God's revealed will during a particular time. We believe that it is necessary to observe the dispensational distinction in order to properly understand the teaching of the Scriptures. I know what you're thinking right now. Okay, Brian, what the heck is a dispensation? Let me try to bring this down as simply as I know how. Okay, A dispensation is simply a period of time in history in which God has certain expectations for us, for the people who lived in that period of time. Let me say that again. It's a period of time in history in which God has certain expectations for mankind. You may not know this, but God's expectations for us here on earth can actually change depending on what he's trying to accomplish here on this earth. So for example, in the beginning, let's talk about God's expectations. What did he say to Adam and Eve? (laughs) Basically, you can do whatever you like, anything whatsoever, except one thing. (laughs) Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it. That was all God's expectation right there. Now, fast forward to the period of Moses. All right, by the time of Moses, God's expectations had changed. God was now establishing a theocracy, right? A model nation here on earth called Israel. And so he instituted hundreds of laws for the governing of the nation of Israel, also animal sacrifices for sin. Okay, that's a different dispensation than when we're living right now, right? Is anybody here sacrificing animals in your backyard? Okay, didn't think so. All right, we have a problem. Police will come check you out. But. <laughs> so that was the period of Moses, right? But that was the expectation. That was God's expectation in that dispensation. All right now, fast forward to the age of the church, right? Since Jesus' death and resurrection, now the law of Moses has been replaced by the law of love. Animal sacrifices, no longer needed. Why? Because Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross for us once and for all. And additionally, in the present age, God's plan is no longer to establish a physical kingdom, a nation here on earth, right? But rather a spiritual kingdom made up of believers from all nations, a spiritual kingdom that's known as the church. Now, It's important to note that while God may have different expectations for different people here on earth, depending on what dispensation or time period they lived in, salvation has been and always will be by faith alone in the Savior alone. In the Old Testament time, they were looking ahead by faith to a Savior who is yet to come. In the New Testament times, right, we look back since the death of Jesus to Jesus Christ as our Savior. Okay, so that's dispensations. Hopefully that makes a little more sense. And finally, drum roll please, okay? Future things. Here we go. I'm just going to read this and then we're going to check out. I promise. <laughs> we believe that the next event in God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church when living and dead Christians will be caught up to meet the Lord and receive rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Following the rapture, we believe a seven-year period of tribulation will commence upon the earth at which time God's wrath will be poured out on mankind. Then after that, we believe God's millennial kingdom will be ushered in by Jesus Christ when he returns to the earth in power and glory to rule sovereignly over the world for a thousand years. The unsaved dead of all ages, we believe, will be raised after the millennium to face the judgment of the great white throne and will be cast into the lake of fire where there will be eternal punishment, 
We believe the redeemed of all ages will exist in an eternal state of joy and bliss in the new heavens and the new earth where they will worship and serve God forever. All right, we made it. We did it. Good job. You hung in there with me. You all deserve a medal. (laughs) And let me just say this. Those last two sections, again, we don't expect you to fully understand all the details of those things. We hold them more loosely than the rest of our doctrinal statement. But that's a summary of what we believe here at Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. Now, if you have further questions, I have some really good news for you. Okay, you have a pastor who loves to talk theology. <laughs> I will talk theology over sleeping, sometimes maybe over, nah, probably not watching the Vikings, but almost over anything. I will talk theology, okay? So you can hit me up after the service, set up a meeting with me, even better, buy me lunch at Shanghai Express, right? <laughs> Always works, I promise. But I'd love to talk to you if you got further questions. All right, let's pray. Phew, <laughs> Lord, I thank you. Uh, that as we've covered this, I'm excited that we've done this because what we believe is so important. Lord, I think of the words of A.W. Tozer who said, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And God, I know for a fact that what we believe, it impacts how we think day in and day out. And how we think about you, God, and who you are and, and about creation, about sin, about salvation, about all these things. What we think impacts how we feel, which ultimately then impacts how we act. So while this may seem like a lot of information, it has application, tremendous application. It makes a difference in our lives. It can get us excited about serving you. And Lord, we recognize that nobody has a corner on the truth. And God, I just pray that we would have unity in those things that are essential, that we would show liberty and the non-essentials, not major on the minors, which we don't do around here. And in any discussions we may have with other people, that we would show charity. We would be gracious in our interactions about theology. But God, I thank you so much that we are Hill Country Bible Church, that we hold to the truths of your word and and all that we need for life and godliness is spelled out in your scripture. So God, I pray that for every one of us, we would have a hunger to know you better, to know the truths of your word, because that'll impact our passion for for living for you and the way we live our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.